kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. Acts chapter 12, verse 25 through 13, verse 3. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now in the church that was in Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. In these scriptures, we break into the third and final section of the book of Acts. In chapters 1 through 7, the gospel filled Jerusalem and thousands came to Christ. In chapters 8 through 12, the same gospel was propelled by persecution and opposition throughout all Judea and Samaria and even into Syria, and thousands more came to Christ. During that second stage, God in his amazing providence brought the gospel to a man of Ethiopia. To the people of that time, Ethiopia was the uttermost parts or the fringe of the world. And this man returned home to wait for the kingdom of God to catch up with him and complete his redemption to the will of God in Christ. While Luke does not return to the Ethiopian story directly, we trust that his joy was fulfilled, because here we find the inauguration of the kingdom's increase throughout all the world, even to its uttermost parts. But this time it was not by persecution, but by evangelistic zeal in response to the express purpose of God. Acts 12.25 And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. The placement of this statement seems to me to indicate that the previous incident involving Peter took place while they were in Jerusalem. Those were dark and challenging times, and it might have been tempting to flee. But they remained there to fulfill their ministry, that is, to accomplish their solemn charge of delivering the money for relief from the next great burden the church in Jerusalem would face. Later, Saul would write to one of the young preachers he had trained and charge him in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 5, Be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Although the work of Christ is destined to triumph in this world, it will rarely be easy in a given moment. But loyalty to Christ is practiced by patient endurance and fulfillment of the tasks He has assigned to us, whatever they may be and whatever challenges may come against us in their fulfillment. When they returned to Jerusalem, that is, when they went back to Antioch, Luke adds, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. When Luke says they took with them John, whose surname was Mark, or John Mark, as we'll call him, 
There's much more in that expression than simply the idea that he accompanied them on their journey. What Luke here describes may be called the apostolic pattern for the training of evangelists. We've already seen this once before when Saul and Barnabas took Titus with them on this trip to Jerusalem. Presumably he's still in tow, but now he has been joined by John Mark. In the future, Luke himself, as well as Timothy and others, will share in the same experience. As we encounter this system again in future studies, we'll re-examine it and take note of special features that are highlighted along the way. But for now, we might give a wide-angle view of the process. When the apostles, prophets, and evangelists of the primitive church saw a young man who exhibited the gifts and talents necessary to serve as an evangelist, they would invite him to join them in their own work. In this arrangement, the young student would indeed travel with the older servant of God because the evangelists in that day were generally working to preach the gospel in a broad territory and to establish churches in various communities there. But this program consisted of much more than merely traveling alongside and assisting them in the work. To use my own experience as a young man, it involved much more than leading songs and prayers and learning how to make your bed and visit with brethren. Later, when they had formally become evangelists themselves, Saul would write epistles to Titus and Timothy and remind them to continue in the things that he had previously taught them. If we examine those epistles, we find that he taught them how to study and learn the Bible so that they could give sound or healthy teaching to the churches. He taught them how to share Christ with unbelievers and how to set churches in order, helping Christians learn to live in a way that glorifies Jesus, and developing men to serve as elders and deacons, and women to serve as spiritual mothers and servants in their own rights to the body of Christ. And he taught them how to behave themselves, how to live good, ethical lives, and how to have good moral character, so that as they served Christ, they would not give any occasion for their lives to bring reproach against him. He had taught them great promises of God that would sustain them in dedication and drive to work, even when things were difficult and discouraging. And this is an extreme generalization, but it gives a basic picture of the sort of things young men were instructed in to prepare them for the work of an evangelist and the way it was done in the primitive church. I believe this pattern is essential to the success of the kingdom of God in any given place and age. The alternative of seminaries and Bible colleges, which was designed by human wisdom, fails in several points, but particularly in the realm of moral and ethical development. Timothy, Mark, Titus, and Luke did not end their tours with a diploma once they managed to wangle a passing grade by answering the questions right on their theology quizzes. They rather spent the rest of their lives under the spiritual mentorship of devoted followers of Jesus. But for this system to exist, it requires not merely young men who are willing to submit themselves to spiritual oversight— 
but older men who are willing to take up the burdens and challenges associated with that kind of oversight, some of which we're going to see in the further scenes of Acts. For now, we may conclude that it would be good to pray and ask God to raise up the kind of men, young and old, who could make this system work in the modern age. Continuing now in chapter 13, verse 1. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. When Luke says these men were in the church, he presents the biblical concept of local congregational membership. The word church is a poor rendering of the Greek ekklesia. It literally means an assembly or congregation, and it would be much better if it was consistently translated in those ways. Of course, the word church has an unshakable place in modern vocabulary, and if we want to read the Bible, we're going to encounter it, unless we use very particular translations. But if we want to read the Bible well, we should at least understand what it really means. As the book of Acts and the subsequent epistles of the apostles and prophets unfold the picture, we find that the word church is used in four senses. First, there is what theologians often call the universal church, that is, all believers in all the world. This is the sense used in Acts chapter 2 and verse 47, where the Bible says Jesus was adding those who were saved to the church. But there is, I think, a better way of describing this concept that comes directly from the Scripture. In Psalm 22, verse 25, the psalmist describes the people of the Messiah, who he gathers together to himself through his triumph over death, as the great assembly, or the great congregation. This passage is in fact applied to the Church of Christ in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 12, in the universal sense. So I suggest that the best language we can use is the language of the Spirit of God. And thus, the whole community of believers throughout time and space is best called the Great Congregation. Second, there are references to the church in a regional sense. While I'm skeptical that we have one here in Acts 13, although some have read it that way, there is a rather clear example in Acts 9.31 where Luke refers to the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. Some manuscripts say the churches, and in either case, there were several congregations in those regions, but they are all part of the same people of Jesus Christ. Third, there are references throughout the Bible to local congregations. In the epistles, we frequently read about the church at such and such a place, or the church that meets in such and such a home. See, for example, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2 and Philemon verse 2. The local congregations are described as perfect representations of the people of Jesus Christ in their area in all respects of government and capacity or ability. That is, each congregation is completely independent and autonomous of other congregations respecting their administration and their capacity to carry out the will of King Jesus. Each congregation is the body of Christ and the temple of God in their respective locale. That's how the Apostle Paul spoke to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 12.27. In respect to their apostolic office, 
the apostles sustained the same relationship with every congregation in the world, and every congregation in the world was governed by their local elders who were directly under the authority of Jesus Christ as communicated by the revelation of the apostles and prophets. In early Christianity, every Christian was a member of a local congregation. And in that local congregation, he or she found his or her role and work in the service of Jesus Christ as a member of the body and a living stone in the building. The local congregation is where the Christian experienced the fullness of fellowship with God, functioning as a priest or minister of his holy sanctuary, because when the local congregation congregated or came together into one place, the Spirit of God was there. And spiritual sacrifices and services could be offered to God acceptably in the name of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Thus, the fourth sense in which the word church is used in the New Testament is to refer to the assembly of the congregation. 1 Corinthians 14, 34, for example. When Luke says that these prophets and teachers were in the church, he means that they were members of the local congregation there in Antioch. But in a moment, we're going to find them serving both in and out of the assembly. In an earlier study, we were introduced to the prophetic office in the early church. We learned that there was essentially two kinds of prophecies given by these men and women. Number one, some prophecies were revelations or at least interpretations of the revelations of the apostles. These were part of the body of truth that would ultimately be perfectly represented in the New Testament Scripture at which time these messages would no longer be given to the church in this way, 1 Corinthians 13, 8-10. Number two, some prophecies were signs that God's special favor was on the people of Jesus by predicting among them future events that were of special interest, such as famines or persecutions that they could in turn prepare for. The gift of prophecy and similar gifts that might have been lumped in with it, such as the word of wisdom or the word of knowledge or the discerning of spirits, seem to have been present in every congregation, at least in the course of time and through the work of the apostles. See 1 Corinthians 12, 4-11 and Romans chapter 1, verse 11. These gifts were given by the Spirit, but only to those upon whom the apostles laid their hands, Acts 8.18. Here, Luke introduces another office called teachers. Some suggest that these were elders based on an interpretation of Ephesians 4.11 in which elders would be called pastor teachers. Others eschew that suggestion and insist that Ephesians 4.11 lists teachers as an office in the church distinct from and in subordination to elders or perhaps in cooperation with elders, and still others think that teachers were a special office that existed only in the early church of men who were gifted by the Spirit, similar to prophets, to explain the revelation of the apostles to the churches. Generally, those who hold that last view suggest that this was an itinerant office, that is, they traveled from place to place. And this is largely based on comments in a very old Christian writing called the Didache. I am unconvinced that the Didache deserves as much authority in interpreting the New Testament as some people are inclined to give it. And I certainly do not see that these men were itinerant. 
because Luke describes them as in the church, that is, members of the local congregation laboring for and with it. There may have been some itinerant teachers, but that does not mean, and it does not seem, that all of them were. As to whether all teachers were elders, or whether they were all supernaturally gifted by the Holy Spirit, I find it difficult to accept either of those statements. The Apostle Paul seems to say that teachers are given the substance of what they teach by other men through the Scriptures rather than directly from the Spirit himself, and that their qualification for their work is based on their faithfulness to Jesus and on their natural ability to instruct others effectively, 2 Timothy 2.2. There were almost certainly some teachers in the early churches who had gifts of the Spirit, perhaps most of them, maybe even all of them. But Paul does not treat that as an integral part of the office, as he did when he spoke of prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14.26-40. But I will say that it is possible that at least some of the teachers and prophets in Antioch were also elders of the church, especially based on their involvement in the sending out of Saul and Barnabas. The prophets and teachers were Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. We already know Barnabas and Saul, but the other men here are worth mentioning. We know virtually nothing about Simeon and Lucius other than the fact that they were evidently from Africa. Cyrene was in North Africa, and since men from Cyrene were involved in the establishment of the church at Antioch, it's very possible that Lucius was one of the founding members. Niger, Simeon's nickname, means black, which most people have taken to mean that he was a sub-Saharan African. While several modern commentators make a great deal about the wonder of an interracial church leadership, the truth is there's no evidence for prejudice over matters like skin color in any part of the ancient world outside of the Hindu caste system. Modern race feeling associated with skin color is a social phenomenon with its roots in theories like Darwinian evolution that are rather novel. Racism is certainly ungodly and has no place in the Christian faith, and it is certainly true that the nature of Christ's kingdom is such that we should expect to see people from different nationalities coming together into one body and showing mutual respect for one another. So an inter-ethnic leadership in a congregation should not be abnormal. But I'm a firm believer that we should be diligent to reject the system, not simply act like enlightened participants in it. Racism is a stupidity derived from a mythological conception of humanity. The Bible liberates us from such a delusion with the reality that there is only one human race and all tongues, tribes, peoples, and nations within it are beloved of God and subject to the gospel of Christ. A particular interest is the man named Menahem, or Menahem, who Luke says had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. The expression brought up literally means that they were nursed from the same breast, and some translations say they were foster brothers. See, for example, the American Standard Version. This would mean that Menaean was much older than these other men. Herod the Tetrarch was Herod Antipas, who had executed John the Baptist. If Menaean was his contemporary and was associated with him and the family even from his youth, 
then they would have been educated together with Archelaus in Rome. Now think about what an amazing journey this man had taken. He had seen the family in which he was raised torn apart by corruption, greed, lust, and intrigue. Many of his brothers had been murdered by their father. Archelaus had lost his power and been banished because of his violence and brutality. Antipas had ruined the marriage of his other brother Philip to steal his wife. Convinced because of his own lusts to kill one of God's greatest prophets, rejected an opportunity to hear and help Jesus during the hour of his trial, and finally was himself exiled to Gaul. But Menaean, by the power of the gospel, overcame this sordid upbringing to become a follower of the crucified and risen Jesus. Now he was a leader among Christ's people, even perhaps a prophet himself. It is remarkable, almost unbelievable, what the kingdom of God can accomplish in this world through the power of Christ. Now, with these men in this church, Jesus is about to do something greater and grander than ever before. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You can contact us at tulsachurchofchrist at gmail.com or visit tulsachurchofchrist.com. From all the dark places of earth's heathen races, oh, see how the thick shadows fly. The voice of salvation awakes every nation. Come over and help us, they cry. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story. God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. With praising and singing and jubilant ringing, their arms of rebellion cast down. At last every nation, the Lord of salvation, with glory their effort shall crown. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.